Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. Welcome to the Truth to Power show. I'm your host, VJR Nathan. This is Radio Free Brooklyn. And in this episode, I'm going to be interviewing Elka Gould, who is an artist, filmmaker, and former filmmaking teacher at Stuyvesant High School in New York City. Gould's degrees include a Master's of Arts from Queens College and a Master of Arts in Film Theory from the Graduate Center of the City of New York. After directing many successful community-based video projects with her students at Stuy, Gould is embarking on her first documentary, The Macaroon King Film, and you can find out more about that film at macaroonkingfilm.com. Uh, and we're going to be starting the interview in, in just a moment. Thank you. Okay, so we're here with uh, Elka Gould, uh, filmmaker and director of The Macaroon King. Uh, welcome. Hi. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Thank you. And uh, we're going to start the conversation with just uh, some introductory material about yourself as a person uh, by asking, uh, where were you born and where did you live most of your life? I'm a native New Yorker. Mm -hmm. I was born and raised in Manhattan on the Upper West Side. And, uh, you know, more about me. Uh, Now I live in Brooklyn. I cross the river. And I love it. And that's what I consider my home. Where, and what what point did your passion for filmmaking, specifically documentary filmmaking, emerge in your uh, journey? Oh, that's a good question. I got into film late later in life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was a sculptor for many years. That's what I studied in college. And uh, I had a studio in Greenpoint, Brooklyn for 25 years. Uh you know, I thought about that question. You know, how did I get into film? I mean, film is everywhere. Yeah. Everyone is into media and films. But I think uh, I did an outdoor sculpture uh, in Flushing Meadows Park. And I had this impulse to put, you know, a televis- television screen. It was a um, Aztecan figurine that I blew up to uh, six foot high. And I wanted to put a television screen in the chest of the figure. Mm-hmm. I didn't have any idea what I would put in, you know, what the media would be about. And so I always had this in the back of my mind. And uh, I remember uh, I was, uh, I went to uh, the Venice Biennale about 10 years ago. And I walked into a room, uh, you know, of uh, installations of sculptors and other artists. And most of it was video. You know, video was really going strong. And there was one piece that really, um, that I really liked. It was a, um, there was a projector from the ceiling projecting uh, about a five by five, by five foot square onto the ground. Mm-hmm. And it was of bottles dropping on the ground, uh-huh. wine bottles. So you would see the image dropping onto the ground and breaking and the and the wine spilling out. Like in replay? And replay. And replay, yeah. In the loop, yeah. You know, I don't know what it meant, <laughs> but I was just, I loved it that, you know, the two-dimensional world turned into a three-dimensional world. Exactly, yeah. So it was like an art installation that used media and that inspired you to get into uh, creating film? Or that was that was the incident. Like, yes, it was one of the yeah, incidents. One of the instances, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was huge. You know, a lot of people were starting to use that as a medium, and I wanted, I guess, to jump into that world and communicate with that as well. Good, good. So, um, how did your understanding of documentary filmmaking specifically, like, how did that emerge, and 
uh, you know, the interest in documentary filmmaking? Well, you know, we're, we're always watching documentaries, one form or another, on, mm. on the news, on Channel 13, you know, yeah. uh, great documentaries that, you know, have been around for a long time. And I was, you know, something, uh, let's see, I was starting to learn how to use the equipment, video equipment, and uh, there's a lot to learn. And uh, I first was very intrigued by story structure, mm -hmm. you know, so forget about the avant-garde um, art installation. Yeah. Suddenly I was, uh, you know, faced with storytelling. So that really um, took me, you know, to another place. And uh, I tried to do one. I, I, I asked a friend who wrote a story, my friend Wanda, mm -hmm. very good writer. And it, I built the sets. You know, I got actresses or actors. And uh, it didn't work. Okay, you know. yeah. I let it be. You know, maybe I'll try again. And then, you know, I thought, let me try, let me see what, let me do something that's a little bit less artificial. Yeah. And the story is, I walked into a supermarket with um, my partner, and she pointed out a can of macaroons in this, you know, in, in the kosher for Passover section. Uh-huh. And that was something inspired you? <laughs> yeah, no, and she said, I know, I know the owner that made you know, who produces these uh, macaroons. Uh-huh. Wow, wow. Yeah. And I was so intrigued. I was, let me, uh, let me document that, you know. I, I don't know if she recommended it or I did, yeah. but, and that's where it started. But in that story, I guess the, the main objective there or the main takeaway there was that you were looking for something more real than artificial. You were looking, for, like, in the, in the project that you mentioned before, I think the part of the frustration that I'm hearing is that it felt artificial, it felt not... Uh, that you were looking for something more real or more authentic, would you say? Like a subject for your filmmaking or your film, uh, your storytelling? Would you say that's true or how would you... Uh, well, there were so yeah. many things missing in my toolbox yeah. of yeah, filmmaking. Exactly, yeah. For instance, you know, I didn't really know my characters that well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, you really have to be very good at um, storytelling. And yeah. I was still struggling with that. Yeah. So it was, it was a very different experience uh so uh, how did your understanding uh of filmmaking kind of begin to emerge as uh you know the, in the documentary filmmaking there's a lot of discourse about kind of being objective versus being subjective you know the uh, search for truth versus artificiality and how did your understanding of this discourse of because uh, many people when they watch documentaries they're like oh, i'm looking for something real i'm looking for something that's not manufactured but i'm looking for at least in my experience is that so what is your understanding of that kind of a discourse in that? Well, to answer um, your yeah, question yeah. in the beginning, uh -huh. you know, how did I learn um, how to approach the documentary? Well, uh, I taught filmmaking to high school students for 17 years. And when you teach something, you have to really know what you're teaching. So I read everything I could. I immersed myself in the... Uh, field of film and then I had a sabbatical leave in 2009 mm -hmm. and when you go as a teacher a public school teacher on sabbatical you have to 
take courses full time. Yeah. So I decided to to study film theory at the Graduate Center. Mm-hmm. And that really opened my mind to, you know, all the different theories out there. Oh, and nice. that's what all the arguments were about. And it, it just was so important to me. Uh, it allowed me to, it gave me, you know, vocabulary. Yeah. <laughs> to, uh, good, good. to talk about it and to understand what was going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what trends were appearing. You know what what was the public um, interested in. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, in regards to, uh, you're, do you identify then as an independent filmmaker? And if so, what is that uh, identity or that uh, uh, what does that really mean? Like, I think a lot of times we think about independent films versus mainstream Hollywood films, and the discourse about you know that the uh, the way or approaches to these. Uh, filmmaking process. So, if we could talk a little bit about how your understanding of um, these kinds of discourses, you know, your understanding of that kind of terminology, yes. yeah, yes. So, yeah. Uh, there is a, a a wide spectrum of filmmaking styles and modes, mm-hmm. and you might say that they could be affected by the amount of money that's invested in them, mm-hmm. or not, because. If you look at Hollywood now, they borrow a lot of uh, the experimental films, you know, made on a very small budget. Yeah, and their techniques, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because now you see sometimes even, uh, you know, independent experimental film might, or independent film with a low budget might borrow techniques of mainstream films, or in other words, they, they feel like a Hollywood movie, even though they have a low budget. You know, like the techniques they're using on the storytelling techniques, as, as I think you understand, but... Yeah. I just wanted to clarify that, yeah. And then, and the vice versa, you know, where we have a mainstream movie that, you know, uses some of the techniques of uh, independent cinema, but we do. Yeah, I, I think, budget, you yeah. know, film is a is an art form, and uh-huh. it's constantly being fed by the, 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 you know, a mirror. It's like a mirror of what's going on around the world. Uh-huh. And it's a wonderful medium for, for that reason alone. Yeah. But I would say that I'm, you know... Uh, Compared, if you would, some theorists say that there's the um, the king, which is or the queen, the royalty is yeah. Hollywood, and the experimental indie film are the journeymen, mm-hmm. you know, or yeah, such you know. So I, I'm I'm down near the journeyman. Great, great. So <laughs> that's really great. I think that's a good analogy to understand to help the listeners understand that that within the same realm there's like people who necessarily you know have the resources they can and the people who are kind of plodding ways or journeying ways for them to explore so they ultimately you know in that analogy I kind of get that you know the uh the king might go into that direction once the journey and the explorers go out there like columbus went and explored you know a new area for that kingdom to then go into you know it creates that pathway in my in my understanding for that kingdom to come into and then move into and then now we have a new kingdom of where that journeyman you know Mm -hmm. explored or tracked new ground in so um so we were talking a little bit about the film macaroon king which is the major focus of your work now um you know uh please tell us about the subject of the film and uh you know how you talked a little bit about how the initial inspiration to begin the filmmaking process of that subject you know when you were in the 
deli and you saw the macaroon uh, and you had a connection but if we talk a little bit about how from that from that inspiration you know how you started the process of <coughs> creating the macaroon thing as a film yeah all right the process was interesting because I didn't have a story I didn't even I had no idea what it would what I would find mm-hmm. and a lot of documentaries are just like that. You send out your explorers. Yeah. They see they scope out what's going on and you're looking for that story. I I didn't find out what my story was until I started editing about 3 years into the project. Okay. I was teaching so I I would go on weekends and film the events that were uh, unfolding. And then, um, yeah, so it was the editing process that really suddenly, you know, made me face what, now what is the story? Yeah, but just functionally, I mean, on the, on the, on the very mundane level that you, after your friend introduced you, that you made, yeah. a, you made a determination that this story, that you would follow the subject or how, how was the, oh. what was the arrangement? Oh. Between you and the person, the Macaroon King, or uh, you could say his name or whatever. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, Arnold. Yeah. Arnold, yeah. Well, um, uh, <coughs> we're friends with the daughter, uh-huh. right? Yeah. It was friends of the family. And we told them we were interested in uh, documenting what was going on. And they were fine with it. Yeah. Most of, most of the family was. There yeah. were some parts of, some members of the family that were a little bit hesitant. Because you don't want people really messing around in your business. Yeah. But there was also a great admiration and love for the product, the, you know, the macaroons that he was producing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what, why I was allowed to film. So I would go there, I would schedule appointments, you know, with Arnold or one of his uh, employees and do an interview. But it was, also, it was always, always a stressful time. mm you know, I had to get in and out because they were working. Mm-hmm. And we found out uh, that there, um, when I interviewed Lisa, the daughter, that there was um, a real uh, financial crisis going on, which they didn't even know about. Oh, okay. So the you didn't family. know, actually, the subject of the film, when I understood when I saw it, uh, the, the main focus, actually, you didn't know that when you started filming. No, not yeah. at all. Oh, interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. yeah. So you went dive Being in. Being yeah. a Greenpoint artist... For so long, for so many years, mm. I didn't even know this factory existed. Mm. The front of the building is so nondescript, and it has all different, la- you know, signs on it. You just don't know what it is. Yeah, and I guess that's for, you know, you know, it was a there was a lot of that area was uh, had quite a drug problem. There was a lot of crime, I suppose. Uh huh. You know, I I don't know. I'm just assuming yeah. drugs and crime, but <laughs> um, so you. You sort of keep a facade that's not going to uh, invite um, drug dealers <laughs> to steal or something. So let's talk a little bit about the film structure uh-huh. and how you um, how you structured it and how like ultimately you said that you were saying what I understand is that you started filming you kind of discovered that there was a center or heart of you know their financial troubles and then you end up in the editing process kind of creating or highlighting that would you say and then how that was structured around the center or art 
of the story that you then created, a, you know, flashing forward to, you know, during your editing process that you found the heart of the story and you were starting to um, structure it. So uh, from my understanding what you were saying. So um, uh, what was the process? Well, I have to, yeah. I'll tell you. Okay, yeah, sure, sure. You know, I'm a, I was mm -hmm. born and raised with television. Uh -huh. I, you know, I love television. Yeah. I watch it almost every night, I hate to say. If yeah. it's not CNN, you know, it's something. <laughs> yeah. And when I was uh, sort of transitioning from sculpture to uh, video, mm -hmm. I was first really intrigued by storyboards um, because they show you what's going on that you're watching. When you watch a television show or, or a movie, you don't really pay attention to the editing. Mm. But storyboards show you what they do. I was fascinated by how you could take a three-dimensional world, turn it into a two-dimensional world, and then, and then create the illusion of a three-dimensional world. Uh, there was a few shows on television that really influenced me. And I have to say, one of them was uh, 48 Hours Mystery uh, on CBS. You know, it was about you know, solving uh, murders. And the structure to me was, you know, an outright formula that I just loved. And, you know, as, as, you know, as I appreciated it, yeah. but I knew that I was also being manipulated mm. and held in my seat uh, until I found out the answer. And I wanted my, the Macaroon King to turn into something like that. Yeah, so I keep... The Building up of suspense, and yes. Keeping that, keeping the viewer engaged in the the central heart of what what might be considered the formula, but almost like a mystery or a thriller, like kind of finding out what the culmination of the initial desire, initial initial presented problem, and solving that problem. Would you say, yeah? Yeah, but I quickly shed that uh, uh -huh. that traje trajectory. Okay, and uh, I realized. That I needed for such a you know a, a long film, you really need to know the art of storytelling and have a very tight structure. Mm -hmm. So I found someone who's a storytelling storyteller um, professor, mm -hmm. uh, and I hired her to help me with that. And she recommended an editor who's really good with rough footage. So working with them. And also they looked at the, the, my writing and what, what I was trying to get out of the film. And uh, we came up with a tight story. Okay. And I had to give up my 48 hours mystery oh, uh, okay, yeah. Yeah, formula. But I, I know uh, that you, uh, in your thesis, you talk, because I read a little bit of your, I read your thesis and uh, mm -hmm. that you wrote, you kind of the, the, the uh, contextual understanding of the macaroon game. And you were talking a little bit about kind of how in the editing process you were looking for the emotions behind that. And my experience of watching it was that the, the tension, there was a tension there that, you know, we set up with, they, they have the problem of um, having a financial um, difficulty and then, you know, so, in the process of solving that problem and finding out how the, how the, what the solution to that problem is by the end of the movie, you know, what, what the character's solution is, what the uh, owner's solution is. So also you're talking a little bit about how in the ending of the shots or in the ending of the sequences, there's like an emotion of tension or there's emotion of uh, joy or emotion of, uh, of um, that you want to provoke in the viewer or that you want to structure in the viewer. Uh, would, you, would you say that's true? Or? Well, 
Yeah, emotion is very important. That's uh-huh. you know very engaging for yeah. the audience, and that's what keeps the story alive. Uh, my favorite documentarian is Barbara Koppel. She's well known for her film called uh, Harlan County. And after I saw that documentary, I was very um, moved. And I loved the way the story was told. Uh, there's a lot of... Um, first of all, it's, uh, it's about coal mining, the coal mining industry in Kentucky. And uh, the workers were uh, trying to unionize and it, it was very, very dangerous uh, territory to be filming in. There was a lot of violence. And Barbara Koppel and her team just kept videotaping and interviewing people, the wives of miners. And at the same time, they were exposing the extreme poverty that many of them lived in. So you get a side of America that you would never know. And this is what I like about uh, document- documentary. You, you learn about things. It exposes you to the, uh, the truths of our country and gives you the opportunity to change it. Uh, for instance, um, my film, which is about health care, which I believe is about health care, it's a story about a macaroon baker. But the heart of the story is that the lack of health care, the skyrocketing costs of health care were really uh, interfering with, you know, the business. They couldn't, it was not sustainable. But there, also, there also are some alternatives presented even within the film where the daughter says, oh, you could have, just priced it higher or something like that. There were some possibilities, you know, that the other um, characters in the film present as alternatives to just being about healthcare. But I think that's definitely one of the themes. Of, yes. Yeah. Yeah. There were so many things he could have done. He he even admits at the end he has he he's allowed he becomes self aware that he was in a bubble. Mm. He did everything himself. Yeah. And he should have reached out to people who know about who knew about marketing or uh, his daughters who could have helped him uh, figure out how to sell the building you know there's a lot a lot of conflict uh, generated from the fact that the daughter said you never told me about this or you never told me about that and this kind of tension that's built and will he or won't he change that perspective is built throughout the film so it's good and how would you say that? What was the ultimate the process of creating those oh, emotional tensions? Or, yeah? The characters are just generally very open and full of emotion. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm much more reserved and quiet. So I loved filming them. Yeah, I was loving every minute because they were articulate and right to the point and funny. Yeah. There's some great moments with the daughter of the owner, uh, she's a poet, and she's reading poems that were f- that are about her father, the owner. Uh, so, if you talk a little bit about kind of the process of, um, you know, just reveal a little bit more of the. Oh well, I was it. a little bit um, afraid of the father. Uh huh. And maybe I'm afraid of the dominant male figure. You know, my own father. Uh huh. So there was, I think, 
actually Arnold is like everybody's father in a way. Yeah. You know, he's the breadwinner. Uh, he's strong. You know, he's um, very, very good father figure. Yeah. Um, it was great to have Lisa to call on the phone and say, Lisa, this happened. What should I do? You know, and she was sort of the mediator between me and Arnold mm -hmm. and the family. And her poetry or her uh, story gives you a different perspective, would oh, you say? Of, she, when I found out she was writing poetry about the macaroon factory, it was a no-brainer. Yeah. Bring her in. And I went to her poetry readings. She, she had at least five that I, I went to, and we only pulled out uh, from the 40 hours of footage I have about, uh, we took two. Yeah, two, those, two those two poems did, you know, inform me as a viewer of another perspective of the whole situation. And that was good. It's interesting how when you see Lisa read her poems in a, a venue where it's all poets, mostly. Uh -huh. and, and she has people laughing on the floor, rolling on the floor. Yeah. It's interesting how to juxtapose Arnold with his daughter. And someone uh, compared it to... A King Lear story. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, you have the good daughter and the daughter who causes trouble. Oh, right, right. Yeah, I know that. Yeah, I saw that in the film. Yeah. Yeah. Because you have a, a little bit of competition between the two daughters where one of the daughters, you know, the perception. This kind of feeds back into what we were talking about earlier about, you know, the, the um, perception of truth and subjectivity is that you have like two people with two different, totally different viewpoints of the same, um, you know, incidents or uh, happenings. And then, you know, and the film kind of documents their, their competing perspectives. And then the viewers let in on how subjectivity within the subject of this film, you know, within the, the content of the film plays into it, you know. So I think it was interesting. So uh, we'll take a quick break and then we'll continue the conversation. You're listening to the Truths of Power show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I just want to take a moment to say that Radio Free Brooklyn is a nonprofit organization that relies on supporters like you. And if you'd like to donate to Radio Free Brooklyn, please go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.com backslash donate. And if you'd like to sponsor this show, please go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.com backslash truth to power. Any donation you make will be applicable towards my monthly fees to participate in this community. And that will support me and the vision for this show. So I really appreciate it if you could take a moment to look at um, Patreon and the benefits that can give you by donating. And right now we're going to be listening to a song before we return to our conversation with Elka Gould. We're going to listen to a song by Peaches and Crime called Mrs. Colt Revolver. Please enjoy. Thank you. One day, ladies and gentlemen, everyone will get exactly what they deserve. Don't worry, though. It hasn't happened yet. In the meantime, Andrew Diamond, a believer in strong female role models, will sing Mrs. Colt Revolver.
with Elka Gould, a filmmaker, a documentary filmmaker, a director of The Macaroon King. And um, we talked a little bit about how you're in the previous section. We talked a little bit about how your inspiration for filming The Macaroon King came from going to a store and kind of seeing the and finding the connection between that and yourself and the subject matter. And then uh, as you approached the filmmaking process, you had certain assumptions about the subject and about the uh, uh, assumptions about Jewish identity uh, that you were then explored and realized it's slightly different that the person that you were interviewing was slightly... Uh, Arnold was, Bender. Uh, Arnold yes. Bender, the, Jew, the Macaron King. So your certain assumptions going in, how they change on meeting the subject and his family and... Sure. If you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah. Well, uh, I originally took on this story to learn about the mysterious world of behind-the-scenes manufacturing of the kosher for Passover macaroon. So when I met Arnold Badner at his factory for the first time, I was surprised by his uh, casual dress. He was in running gear, wearing a muscled shirt and shorts. He was not the traditional Hasidic Jewish black coat, hat, and curly side locks person that I thought I would see. And I was also uh, surprised by the less-than-pristine condition of the building. Uh, no cleaning staff was visible at this site. So I had entered Arnold's life at a crucial juncture. His business was going bankrupt and the factory site looked depressed. And the equipment was very old. I could see some of it was pre-World War II. When I asked Arnold if I could document his story, I think he was intrigued and thought of this as possible publicity stunt. But as time went on and my questions became more personal, Arnold became an increasingly grouchy subject. Uh, his wife, Barbara, was, I believe, adamantly against me, although I, find out, I found out later that she wasn't. She, she liked the idea. As if it was possible that I might discover company secrets. So anyway, Arnold and his daughters, Lisa and Jenny, encouraged me to continue. They believed this story should be told. Uh, when I saw the can of macaroons in the kosher for Passover aisle, which to me is is a big mystery, and kosher, the word kosher, you know, what does that mean? It's been blessed by a rabbi. So I really conjured up an image that uh, this uh, factory was, you know, uh, very pious, and you had rabbis all over the place, and and um, you know it, it just was the um, image that I actually was um, 
what I actually walked into was, you know, a very secular experience with, you know, American Jews, family problems. Uh, what I really learned, rather than a, a spiritual awakening, uh-huh. I had more of a reality awakening yeah. that um, a Jewish product that's kosher uh, can be made by uh, a non-religious. I, 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 don't, I think they're sort of like me, more secular than religious, yeah. but they follow all the traditions mm. for, you know, Passover, etc., Hanukkah and things. And um, there's a great uh, identification with the uh, being Jewish. Yeah. Um, so the the idea um, of learning about my spirituality was not the case. Yeah. I learned more about healthcare, the health benefits of coconuts. I learned about the healthcare crisis and uh, that's something that really has always been a concern of mine and I'm so glad that I can I can actually make a sequel to this film and concentrate on healthcare. Oh good, good. Yeah. <clears throat> so it's safe to say that your knowledge of the process of making kosher food increased by making this film, but also it seems to me that the um main objective or main knowledge gaining process you gained, the main knowledge you gained was about businesses and uh, their struggles with healthcare, would you say? And since that's the, kind of the trajectory you're on now to work on the next project, yeah. Yeah, I started to understand really the, um, the history of small businesses in New York yeah. and New York City and how they've all left to, uh, because it's, it's, it's a union city. And it's very difficult to run a business uh, with uh, very expensive union dues and what was I? Uh, the high cost of healthcare, which is yeah. a very important topic to me. Okay. And I will definitely be uh, researching that more. And I plan to make a film or uh, several small films about healthcare and advocate for Medicare for all. Oh, good, good. And uh, so this is now January of 2018, and we're looking at a new year, a new, many people are doing resolutions and objectives for the year. Uh, you kind of touched a little bit on kind of your trajectory, but do you have any personal objectives or Well, as soon as yeah. this film is finished, mm-hmm. and uh, we uh, have some screenings, you know, and I'll try to get it into uh, film festivals, I want to continue on a project that I started Two years ago, about healthcare, uh, I actually went to Europe and interviewed uh, a few people in Spain and France, just to get an understanding of their healthcare system, mm-hmm. which was very enlightening. Because while Medicare for all is really crucial, everyone needs to be taken care of. It's complicated, yeah, and you don't want to do it so that it's abused you know the the system you want to do it so that it it's fair and healthy and um uh, well administered as far as my yeah. objectives for uh, resolutions for yourself yeah. as a person i mean here. i i was so wrapped up in the filmmaking process and getting the film out 
that the spiritual side, you know, trying to find out more about my Judaism uh, wasn't really any, didn't, wasn't an important aspect. Although my quest to learn about Judaism is always on my mind. Okay. So it's that something that's missing in my life. Is that something that you like to explore in future films? or Yes, yeah? all the time. Yeah, good, good. Okay. So as a filmmaker, after having had this experience, what techniques of craft are you starting to develop or learn about or things that you want to feel like you wanted to deepen? Well, that's a very good question. Uh, now that the film is finished and I can look back and analyze really what I did, I can see that uh, I probably would continue to explore the experimental side of uh, video production mm -hmm. or filmmaking. But there's always that side of the finished, you know, Hollywood product that looms overhead and you, you kind of, you know, wish that you could make a really nice, you know, film with a huge budget. So, you know, there you're torn. Yeah. I think between the you know uh, maybe let's say a purer form of art or a more stylized and formulaic um, trend that we're accustomed to every day, every hour. Yeah, and I think that to follow the analogy we used in the first section, uh, you know, you're the journeyman who's charting new territory. And you're hoping the army will come in to give you the backup support to, for your vision or your understanding of the experimental and hoping that, that the, the rewards and the budgets and the resources that the army brings will then help you to go even further in that vision, would you say, right? Well, so, thank yeah. you, Vijay. That thank was you. beautifully said. Thank you. Thank you. So also about, um, you know, we talk about mediums and, you know, how different film this, the introduction of, you were talking about how... Um, disrupting the narrative and how different people, you know, um, having diverse viewpoints, I think ultimately helps bring the conversation in new territory because the experience that those people bring will then recontextualize the narrative that we have, the stories that we have about not only those, that group or that segment, but also about the general population in general, uh, the public narrative, the discourse we have. So what I'm getting from what you're saying is that um, by examining the experiences of these people, or people in uh, the subjects of the film, mm -hmm. uh, films or, or mediums, we're able to understand how the public discourse about healthcare, or public discourse with small businesses, applies itself in specific situations. Uh, would you agree, or would, how would you formulate that? I think that definitely experience with the viewer is that we're able to see these discourses play out. In oh, really absolutely. Situations, yeah. I think that. A lot of people don't really know how to talk about healthcare. We're so used to it the way it is. Yeah, it's it's almost abstract. You know, it's like we're talking about abstract terms, but when we see it play out in a real world situation, I think it's helpful. Yes, yeah. it's it, that's why documentary is so important because ah. it can uh, it tells you a story which we, you can actually uh, understand or digest and, and and make it your own and connect it to the, Con yeah. the larger narrative. The yes, almost abstract narrative sometimes. And, um, you know, in different mediums, even within this medium of podcasting and, and radio, internet radio, it allows, you know, this is almost like the small independent 
filmmaking versus the larger uh, uh, conglomerate. You know, it's kind of in this in this sense we're getting a chance for us to practice our um, discourse and giving and making it amplified to the different uh, audiences, the more audiences, so that they're listening and increasing our impact of our stories onto larger narrative and hopefully where the journeyman or this show or this conversation is journeyman going into new territory that will allow the listeners to know that there's something out there the christopher Columbus knowing that there's a whole world that then the the kingdom can then come in and you know and you know i guess there are consequences to that but that we you know that's that that metaphor maybe doesn't work exactly but in the sense that you know that that then we're able to plod new territory. So and that's well, that, I I'm yeah. intrigued by that yeah. metaphor that you use. Can yeah. you talk more about it? Yeah. So basically, you know that uh, the limits of the public narrative. So there's certain things when the framework. My understanding is that within we have public discourse, there are limits to that narrative. You know that how far we can go uh, with, um, for example, with healthcare. We think about oh, this is not possible. That's not possible. Because within that storyline that they have in the public discourse, if you follow that narrative trajectory, there's certain limits to it. And then when you have it applied in specific situations, we're able to see how uh, there's we're able to plot new territory with how well in this situation something else was possible that maybe not um, understood in the in the larger discourse. So I think that in that sense. Now, now looking at other situations, saying, is that possible? Is this possible? Uh, applying those uh, outlets or those, those uh, opportunities that the Macron King was able to do in, in this uh, situation to other areas, we're able to see how does that apply or how does it transpose itself in other situations. I'm not sure whether or not I can apply that to this specific situation, but I'm saying with the, our podcasting, for example, this show, I can say, you know, the Truth to Power show is that, you know, um, some people kind of went into the show, uh, went into when I started to promote it as being a political show or kind of a knee-jerk reaction of having having uh, assumptions about what Truth to Power meant. So in the first few episodes, I uh, talked a little bit to the guests and I asked them, what does tr- speaking Truth to Power mean to you? Because I think that's a discourse that has a lot of assumptions in our in our listeners. So being able to redefine the terms of the structure of the podcast and then allowing us to plod uh, conversations to plod new territory in what that means so that then we're hoping in the future i'm hoping in the future when people hear truth to power it'll have a certain resonance with them that will perhaps be um influenced by the conversations in this show mm-hmm. so that's kind of what i an illustration of what i mean by oh, yes. how you know individual journeymen then bring in new territory i mean actually even Terms like the personal is political, or which is what I use as the uh, subtitle for the show, or the truth to power, were actually just started from movements. You know, in the seventies, uh, feminist movement started the personal is political. My understanding is is that they started to use that motto. It just kind of diffused itself into Tom and speak in the discourse, mm-hmm. and then people started to use it. And it's, it's come to mean many things in the sense of the politicizing of the personal is one aspect of the personal is political that it becomes to mean or the discourse about privacy it's come to you know infringe on the personal political in the sense of that everything we do in the personal space has become politicized uh so that's one branch of that tree yes and how um you know in uh the uh personal political also means that you know that every individual choice we make for ourselves speaks to what is possible for other people to make a choice about 
So I think when we talk about personal choices, such as sexuality or uh, personal choices such as uh, diet, you know, when people are saying like, it's my right to uh, have be homosexual or be alternative sexualities or be in that place, they're allowing uh, that opportunity or that perspective or the identity to be taken on without without the kind of judgment that sometimes people make, you know, previously in the past, you know, past number of years, you know, people have made judgments about that and the varying levels of that judgment. So my point is that, you know, every person choice we make is kind of plotting that territory for others to make that choice. I think the power of making a personal choice is, uh, is that it, you know, we're first joining it out, we're sort of trying to scouting it out, just seeing what the repercussions are, are um, what the um, impact that choice has on us personally. And then once we have, if it has a positive impact, we want to amplify it, then we're allowing, we're saying this territory is clear to the other people and more people will come in and make that choice. And then as they, as more and more people come in and make that choice, we uh, amplify the narrative about that choice. And then we have the, in my understanding, the metaphor we have more and more becomes part of the understanding of reality that we have. So then now it's like, oh, it's, you know, people listening to this now, maybe thinking to yourself, there's nothing, there's no judgment about sexuality. There's actually, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if some people living, living today who are younger may feel like, um, oh, what is he even talking about? Because, you know, they may not understand the context of how 50 years ago or 20 years ago, even there was so much judgment about sexuality, you know, and that. Uh, today, millennials may feel like, oh, there's, there's no judgment. I think that's really great that it was because of these well, pioneers. There's a, there's a lot know? of backlash. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of backlash. And that counter with, with, yeah. with Trump as president now, yeah. you'll notice that a lot of people are uh, reactionary, out, yeah. reactionary. And you'll see, for instance, for New Year's Eve, mm -hmm. he had Anderson and his co-host, Yeah, two uh, gay men. Uh -huh. I thought that was brilliant. Yeah, exactly, you exactly. Know, uh, so... Uh, yeah, there, there's an interesting. Um, it, it's important to tell stories, just like you know, a documentary or yeah. write poetry or do this tele. This uh, I'm sorry, not television. This <laughs> podcast yeah. that you're doing, I yeah. think it's it's very important. To exactly, exactly, and it does uh, uh, take the experiences of, of the people being interviewed and myself and, and and put it out there for allowing people to become or embody those the lessons from those experiences. So. Thank you. I know this film, in particular, Macaroon King, is, is a, having a Kickstarter. We're hoping for funds to come in from the public. Can you talk a little bit about um, yes. kind of the Kickstarter? and the? Yeah, know, we're yeah. currently running a Kickstarter, <laughs> and we have three days to go. And, uh, January the, 15th, right? 15th? Uh, actually, it's the 13th. 13th? Okay, yeah. 13th, yes. Yeah, okay. And we invite everyone to come look at our website and... Uh, the the website is macaroonkingfilm.com and uh, on that website you'll find a link for the Kickstarter or you can go straight to Kickstarter and type in the Macaroon King mm -hmm. and yeah, yeah. I, I love this uh, crowdfunding tool it's very exciting it's very it's caused me to really think about marketing and uh, I really I think it's great that it's out there. So also, as a, how did this develop your understanding of yourself in the, in the business aspects of the filmmaking as a filmmaker and someone who's uh, you know, creating a business out of filmmaking? How did your business acumen change? 
because you said you were saying circling back about when you were, you were learned a lot about businesses and you know, and for yourself personally as a oh I have a lot of respect for small businesses mm-hmm. you know yeah anywhere you know it's it's a lot of work and I yeah. think it's actually a in, incredibly creative process I never thought of businessmen or women as a creative entity yeah but now I I have complete respect for that world good good and uh, how about for yourself in your own business <laughs> did your acumen or strategizing change or in your own that's uh, what I, th- yeah. I wasn't sure what yeah. you were asking how but yes yourself? yeah for me I realized that yes film is uh, something that you have to market it's a business and it's very expensive yeah and you have to surround yourself with people who know how to do that I myself don't have that uh business side yeah but again that resources are, are is very important developing yeah. that community and network is very important yes to develop that uh and network with people and have that community so um as we wrap up is there anything else that you want to the closing thoughts or uh what are you watching right now as a viewer so uh, you were talking a little bit about like as a as a in film or documentaries or anything you want to oh about? well the last movie I saw was I, Tanya. And before that, I saw The Last Jedi. Uh-huh. Uh, two very different films, yeah, yeah. you might say. Yeah. Uh, I, Tanya was, was very interesting. It, was, uh, it, it appeared to have a pretty good budget, but it had an independent look. You know, it had an indie look. Yeah. Which is um, interesting. You know, that, like we were talking about the... Uh, the independent film informs the Hollywood film. Yeah. And Last Jedi is probably the most perfect example of the mid-budget Hollywood film uh, that we can think of uh, at this time. Oh, The Last Jedi? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. It, I know that if you're an avid fan of Star Wars, there's you understand what's going on. Uh, I, I'm not, I haven't really been uh, such a fan uh, but I, you know, I loved the uh, the special effects and the audio. Uh, you know, I did think that it was a uh, it was a little bit. Re- um, you could see right through it. It was a bunch of scenes that were sort of, sort of strung together, and what kept you watching was the loud music and the yeah. uh, sound and the special effects. Yeah, I mean, I felt as someone who's. Uh... I mean, I try to keep my expectations low when I'm going into Last Jedi because I, I know that there was a lot of... You know, I mean, I enjoyed the other films. I think Rogue One, I enjoyed a lot. And uh, as, as a Star Wars fan, I tried to be like, oh, I'm just going open-minded. But I did have, I did reveal to me that I had certain assumptions about what I wanted the characters to be based on my understanding of the first three films. So my, my kind of, I was a little bit of disappointment in me. <laughs> I think that went too far into comedy. Yeah, so it went very much into like farce almost. Very tongue in cheek. Yeah, and I felt like that was something that, you know, I guess I had the assumption that the Jedi should be something more revered and more uh, taken more as sacred, and then they kind of played with that. And I think a lot of people reacted, myself included, reacted by saying that that's lazy writing and they weren't trying hard enough to go for more. It's easy to make a joke, you know. It's not easy to find that that sincere place. That, so I was right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. I just want to amplify that. So, yeah. and I think with independent filmmakers, they have less assumptions about, you know, that when you're taking on the franchises, you know, there's a lot of assumptions in the viewer uh, about what to expect 
and just playing with those assumptions. So even in your own film, I think that people kind of go in to the to the film with certain assumptions about what a documentary film means and what a what a kosher food means, and maybe that that's kind of the expectations getting uh, not gaining knowledge in the subject as well as you know gaining experience with the the genre. <laughs> so if you could talk a little bit about just to culminate with um, <clears throat> kind of what you hope people will get out of the films that you're making and what, what, what you know, specifically the background. Well, thank you for asking. Thank you. Thank that's, you. An, that's an important yeah. point to make. I hope that people will watch the film and really consider the importance of health care for all. I hope that they can uh, enjoy the film and, uh, you know, and... Um, maybe find something that they can relate to as a Jew or non-Jew. Yeah. Uh, because it, it does open up a world that not very many people uh, normally see. But my biggest objective is, which I'm extremely proud of, is having people see that, you know, small business are, you know, at a turning point they need um, assistance, you know, from the government uh, by taking the burden of health care off their backs. Yeah, good, good. Let them produce, let them grow, let them, you know, uh, employ people. And you know what? Also keep tradition. You know, when these small companies close, you know, will the tradition be lost? Good, good. Very good points, and I hope people will go to macroandkingfilm.com and uh, find out how they can support. It's only a few days after the broadcast of this uh, podcast or this show for them to do so. So I hope people will take action and, and go there. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for, for this interview. Thank you very much. Thank you. This has been an episode of the Truth to Power show on Radio Free Brooklyn. If you'd like to be a guest on Radio Free Brooklyn, please write to truthtopowershow at gmail.com. You can follow me on Facebook at VJR Nathan Poet and Twitter at Truth to Power Show. You can tweet at me or uh, like my uh, fan page on Facebook. Also, I just want to tell you that uh, next week I'm going to be giving a analysis and uh, talk about my own journey, specifically in regards to the weekend that I just spent at Landmark Forum seminar. And for those of you either who have not heard of Landmark Forum or are not familiar with Landmark Forum, I hope that you'll tune in when I gave my uh, talk on my experiences with Landmark Forum as well as my understanding of their curriculum. Um, I also will be talking about my journey and other organizations and teachings I've received over the years that have helped me and guided me on my path to where I am now and I'll talk a little bit about that as well. Both at Landmark Forum for the past 10 years, I've been coming to the understanding or the realization that reality is created by mind. And I'm going to explore that reality and explore that fundamental truth about existence in the next episode and subsequently in subsequent episodes, uh, slowly kind of revealing or unveiling something hopefully for you guys that if you listen in, you will understand some fundamental aspect of my experience of these teachings and I hope to share that with you in future episodes. I'm going to be putting out a special request to my listeners 
in next week's episode. So please tune in to find out what that request is and how that's going to impact possible future episodes of the Truth to Power show. So next episode, special thing coming where I'm going to put out a request, put out a a wish for my listeners, create a future for this show that is going to be very, hopefully very impactful on me personally and for my listeners. Thank you. Also, I'm going to have an interview with Stephanie Berger, who is the president and CEO of the Poetry Brothel. We're going to have a conversation with her on on January 18th. Then on January 25th, I've scheduled an interview with poet Diana Delgado. So please tune in for that, as well as on February 1st, I have an interview with poet Anum Sitar. So I hope you'll continue to listen to the episodes as they come out every Thursday at 9 a.m. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.